helpful to you to follow the reading. It's in the second chapter of the book of Revelation. We're beginning today a series of seven sermons that will deal with the seven churches in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is one of those books that gets greatly neglected and greatly abused. Uh, there are people who see things there that have caused us often to turn away from it, and yet there are people who go through great trouble who look at this book and find in it the comfort of God. In a few moments I will begin to uh, tell you a little bit about what is called apocalyptic literature. Uh, that's the big word for Revelation in Greek. Chapter 2, verse 1 following. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. They were assemblies. Kahal is the old Hebrew for it. Ecclesia is a word which the Ephesians would have understood very well, that letter that John is instructed to take the letter from Jesus from at first because Ecclesia was a called-out group of people who had special privileges to both. And we are a called-out group of people who are called out by the Holy Spirit to bear a faithful testimony to Jesus. The first group of people I worshipped with were a group of athletes and coaches and their wives, and we listened to a lesson from the first epistle of Peter about the suffering church, and Stuart Briscoe brought a brilliant uh, address. The second church I worshipped in was one of those churches which dates back from the American Revolution, a beautiful uh, old Presbyterian church in New Bern. And then the third Sunday, I remember it was quite a thrill for me when I was a student in the seminary. There was one of these fellows who arrived who didn't have the black suit and dark tie and dark socks that all Presbyterian preachers were supposed to wear then. He had a flowery-looking shirt, and he came from Florida, and his name was Jim Kennedy, and he was a former Arthur Mary dance instructor. And uh, he now, uh, they thought he was impossible in seminary. That's always the best recommendation you can find for a preacher. And uh, uh, he went down to Florida and took a church that had 60 members, 30 of them left, and then after he got rid of those, they went to work. And uh, they, <laughs> they started going out winning two by two. 
And uh, I went to the 11 o'clock service, and to get to, into the 11 o'clock service, I had to go about 45 minutes early. And I got there a full 30 minutes before the church started, had to wait to get in, and had to be seated under a balcony in a church that seats 2,500 people. They have more parking attendants than we've got deacons and elders put together. And, uh, and, and they have three Sunday morning services. Their big problem now is whether or not to have two Sunday evening services. And, and it was a wonderful church. The singing was wonderful. The emphasis on evangelism and mission, their education of their children, their social interest in those who are on drugs, uh, these were all very inspiring to me, and I was blessed by that church. And last Sunday I went into a, a church where I heard the retired chaplain of the Senate, Dr. Edward Elson, whom I'd known from other days, uh, speak. And so I saw different kinds of churches, and it was very profitable. But here when we come back to the church, we are thinking about churches who are faced with problems. Church is not in a big building with a great organ or a paid clergyman, but little assemblies of people who are gathered together, who are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, and so that book of the Revelation is written to them. I've already alluded to the fact that it is called the Apocalypse. That word has a mysterious meaning. It means to pull back the curtain and let you see something of the mystery of the working of God. And in apocalyptic literature, dramatic things will be used to describe what's taking place. They're under heavy pressure. It's interesting to me that the most up-to-date New Testament scholars believe that the book of Revelation was written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. J.A.T. Robinson published a book on this last year, which was the book of the year, by Logos Press. A German uh, guy by the name of Bauer also says the same thing. Uh, here were people pushed back in the time of Nero and his persecution who are persecuted for their faith and they are going to receive this strange book, this book of the Revelation, apocalyptic. And it's going to deal with catastrophic events that are taking place. The best commentary that I've been able to find on the book of Revelation is the one by Leon Morris, a great Cambridge scholar that I had the privilege of studying under out at the University of Vancouver. And in it he says this, It is of the utmost importance for modern man that he does not lose touch with the eternal realities which are stressed in the book of Revelation. Perhaps there is no age for which its teaching is more relevant than ours. These are days when the decisions of great powers have far-reaching effects on ordinary men and women. We may have no great interest in ideology, and yet we find that our lives are affected by decisions which are reached in Moscow or Washington or Peking or even in Tehran or some other place like that. Decision in, decisions in which we have no voice nor conceivably could have. Are we then no more than pawns caught up in a great ideological conflict? Nobody wants a nuclear holocaust. 
but are our lives destined to be snuffed out in a worldwide inferno brought about almost against the will of those who think they control the destinies of the nation? Is there something demonic about these evil forces which even our most powerful statesmen seem unable to control? The book of Revelation speaks to an age which is tortured by problems like these, for it was written to a minority with problems of its own about the realities of power. Indeed, it's been called a theology of power. In this day, as in our own day, things would be talked about like the economy. And these Ephesian Christians, which are one of the first, which is the first church that a letter is directed to by Jesus through his servant John, they knew what it was when Paul had come into Ephesus preaching the gospel. You remember there were 12 men there who were not fully instructed about the way of the Lord Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit and how Paul stayed in that place and preached to them the gospel and the Holy Spirit came on them in great power. And you'll know that... Paul did a very untactful thing according to modern day standards. He rented, uh, uh, he, he taught at the synagogue as long as they had let him, trying to teach that Jesus had fulfilled the messianic prophecy. And then this made all the Jews angry, so they kicked him out. So he just rented the building next to the synagogue and started teaching the same thing. Hours each day. And for 18 months he was there. And he taught. And the word began to go out. And it began to spread throughout all of Asia. Of course, a riot occurred in Ephesus because Demetrius, the leader of the local union, began to look at the receipts and see that the economy was being affected and that the sale of the little icons to Diana of the Ephesians, the great temple of Diana, one of the wonders of the ancient world was located there, was being affected. And so a riot occurred. It's sort of interesting if you go back to the... 18th, 19th, and 20th chapter of book, the book of Acts, you can read all about this. Paul went to the arena, which would seat 25,000 people, and they had all gathered shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians, and they were going to tear Paul limb from limb, and yet Paul thought it was just a good crowd, and he ought to get in there and preach to them. And they had to pull Paul away. Uh, and yet uh, Paul had to leave Ephesus. And uh, yet he came back and visited again, and he called for the Ephesian elders of the church. And if you ever want to know what an elder ought to do, then read the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. And read how he shows that an elder is to be one who knows the word of God and one who is faithful to look out for the people in the way that will bring honor to Jesus Christ. How he told them that there would be those who would come in with false doctrines supplanting the word of God. And he'll deal with that in this first letter because that's what John will deal with it here. Jesus will deal with it through John. And so the economy, these earliest Christians couldn't get along in an economy that was based upon the sort of things that were bought and sold in Ephesus. The souls of men are mentioned in that list. And they wrecked the economy when they preached the gospel. You wonder how much of the economy would be affected today if the gospel were really preached in power. 
the beer that made Milwaukee famous would be dumped in one of the great lakes. The pornography in the filthy films from Hollywood would go out. Maybe we're not persecuted because we're not worth persecuting. We're not effective enough to be persecuted. That may be. Well, the book of Revelation also has to be put into language that is coded. Some of our friends here have to write back to Christians in China. And they must be very careful what they write. They cannot write like other people write a letter because it'll be open and it'll be read. One of my friends that I met down at Palm Beach uh, in Florida, I had to go there for a board meeting. And while I was there, a young man came to visit the settler of a foundation that uh, I ha have the privilege of helping with. And he talked, uh, the settler of the foundation had sent for him, a young man who had come from Frankfurt, Germany to Palm Beach, a young man who had been born in China but had to leave China when he was 18 and is now back in Germany. And because there is some loosening up in China, the settler of this Christian foundation wants evangelism emphasized wherever it can be. And I just listened to the discussion. And the man said, that the man who was born and lived 18 years in China, said we have to be very careful about any contact that's made with Chinese Christians because we are always followed by the government when we go to China. And if we speak to a Chinese Christian, his name is taken down and he gets a visit from the director of public security. And it's not nearly as easy as you think. If you approach one of these people, you can put both him and his family in jeopardy. It may mean that his children cannot go to school, his people cannot get a job, they cannot buy or sell as easily as others. So they know something about this struggle of power that we mentioned a while ago, and it's very much up to date. Now, so part of it's in code. In this strange book of the Revelation, we're going to read uh, later on in it. You'll, I have people who are mystified by the language. We ought to be mystified by it because it was written coded. The people there would know who the Alpha and the Omega was, these Christians in the church in Ephesus. They would know that the one who was dead and is alive again is Jesus Christ. But maybe one of the Romans who picked it up would read that and he wouldn't understand what they were talking about. And when they speak of beasts, maybe they wouldn't understand that either because of the code language that's used. I meant to bring out here, I went outside and got the newspaper this morning to bring it to show you how apocalyptic language is used in the newspaper. It was there this morning about the Cavaliers and the Terps, the Terrapins. If you picked up the sports page a year or so ago, you would see where um, Pete Rose, who played for the Cincinnati Ball Club, makes goo-goo eyes at the Phillies. And that would be the headline. And to the person who opens first and reads the sports page, he knows that Pete Rose is thinking about leaving Cincinnati and going to Philadelphia. He'd make more money. But to the average person who doesn't know sports, he can't look at that and read it. And then you really get mixed up if you read about those Catholic schools, and I'm not anti-Catholic, but my goodness, when you read that St. Genevieve Clobber's St. Joseph, 
Uh, and, and you find out later that this is two schools that are having a basketball game. Uh, you, you, you can get something of it there. So there is coded language that's there. And there is coded language that's here in the book of the Revelation. And so people talk about the economy, they talk about sports, and they talk about politics. And that could get you in a lot of trouble too. The emperor was worshipped. And even a person like Nero, who burns the whole city of Rome in order to later get it uh, rebuilt like he wants it. Mad, crazy, evil, cruel Nero. You have to be careful when you speak about politics there. And yet these earliest Christians would not go back on their faith in Jesus Christ even though they were persecuted for him. Nero makes even some of our politicians look enlightened. He was such an evil, cruel, beastly man. You know why there were not more Greeks put to the torch in the arena? The Greeks would commit suicide. The Christians wouldn't. They considered their lives as living sacrifices that were to be offered up for their Savior. And rather than commit suicide, they would be burned at the stake or thrown to the lions. And Paul, in one of his epistles, says, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Whether he means that mob or whether he might have been a part of such a thing, we don't know. But these early Christians went through it. The people that the book of the Revelation is written to the economy, politics, sports, all of those things are involved there. And they're all involved with us today in this struggle for power. So, we remember that Paul went there and established the church, and later he wrote one of his grandest letters, the letter to the Ephesians. Later we know that Timothy was a, an elder, a bishop, a presbyter there in Ephesus, and still later, and we can get some idea of what went on there from First and Second Timothy. We know that John, the beloved apostle, was at Ephesus. And he was their bishop. He was their pastor. He was their teacher and preacher. John, the one who had walked with the Lord Jesus himself. And you know, let me say this for those who don't think John wrote the book of Revelation. Used to be when I was in seminary, they said the book of Revelation was written in... Um, a different style of Greek than John wrote in the Gospel of John and in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Well, let me tell you something. If you were going through what he was going through, you might write in a different style. And besides that, you wouldn't even be writing anyway. You would hire an amanuensis, a secretary. And the secretaries vary from city to city. And they didn't have all the paper that they could write on and throw it away like we do. They had to hire people who wouldn't waste one bit of the papyrus, and they had to write very tiny. And so if it looks wooden, mechanical, or strange, then it may be strange because there is an, another am, amanuensis, another secretary who's writing from there. And that's why some of these new scholars have come out going back to the old traditional view that this is indeed uh, written uh, by uh, John, the beloved apostle, and the one who had walked with our Lord. Now let me look quickly at this letter. Uh, look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. 
to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now remember, he's speaking of the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. We're studying Colossians in prayer meeting on Wednesday night. And last week we saw that in and through Jesus Christ all things were created to the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let your light so shine before men, Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Men do not light a candle and put it under a bushel, but they put it on a lampstand and it gives light in all the house. The church is supposed to give light in this dark, corrupt, evil, filthy world in which we're living. It's supposed to put out the light of truth and righteousness and godliness. And so we're going to be different. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, these seven churches that are not far apart, like a little presbytery almost, says this, I know your deeds, your toil, and perseverance. Jesus knows the deeds and the toil and the perseverance of the church in Ephesus. And he knows the deeds and the toil and the perseverance of the church in Montreat. And he means by that each member of the church. Old John Bolton said to me a little couplet, what would, uh, what would my church be if every member were just like me? What would it be like? Do we really take the Lord Jesus seriously? Do we take him seriously every day? At school, at work, wherever we are? I know your deeds and your toil. The word for toil there is the sort of work that we have with our morning school, the sort of work we have with those in our congregation who visit the sick, the sort of work that we have in sending out missionaries. I know your deeds, I know your toil, I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot endure evil men. You remember what I told you, what, what I told you through my servant Paul, that after my departure there would evil men would come in like wolves seeking to get people to follow after them. And you test the spirits. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles. We have all this accumulation of cults today. A sweet lady called me this week on the telephone to tell me her husband had not been in church for a month because he had been caught up in a cult. A cult that denies the Trinity. A cult that she has more sense than to take any stock in because she knows Jesus and she knows her Bible. And the cults are at work today. You put to those, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Isn't that good? perseverance and you've endured and you've not grown weary I loved it Uncle Ed at 92 going to be with the Lord and I think of how he used to come here when we had our little communicants come in the church 
and most of them would be 10 or 12 years old. And he told them that when he was 12, he joined the church. That must mean that for 80 years, he served Jesus. And his love for Jesus never grew cold. That this faith in the Lord Jesus is not just a little fad you go through at communicants class or when there's a revival meeting or a spiritual emphasis week or a, a Christian concert that appeals to you. But it's something that grows in faithfulness year after year after year after year, better and better and better. That's why it could be such a blessing to so many. Your perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake, not ashamed of the name of Jesus and have not grown weary, and have not grown weary. That, that young man from Germany went into Bonn, the place where you go in Germany to seek to get a visa to get into China, and he spoke to the uh, Chinese consulate there about going to China, asking if he could get permission. And he speaks Chinese, and so they spoke. And he said that this person in the consular office waited until she was sure no one else could hear her ask him a question. And she said to him, China's going through a lot of changes now. I don't know whether you can go into China or not. You won't know either until you get to, to Canton, whether you can go to the places you want to go to. But she said, tell me about Christianity. I know nothing about it. He said she didn't even know what a church was. And he had to begin to tell her about the God who made heaven and earth, just like we said in the creed this morning. The maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And he went through just the bare essentials of the faith. And then he said, she looked at me, and he said, I think that her eyes may have had tears in them when she said to me, everything has failed in China. Do you think that Christ could change so many people? And he told her he thought he could. And she said, when you get back, I hope you'll get in touch with me. I'd like to come to your home and have dinner and talk with you some more perseverance and endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But this I have against you that you have left your first love. Now that's something. Left your first love. The word left there means abandoned. It means divorce, really. That you have abandoned your first love. First love. The love that was there for Jesus. First there had come a commendation for their endurance and their orthodoxy in the midst of persecution, but then comes the complaint. They have lost their first love. And what's the meaning of first love? William Cowper has a hymn in which he says, Where is the blessedness I knew when first I found the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? Come back, O holy dove, return, sweet messenger of peace. I hate the sin 
that made thee mourn and drove thee from my bread. If Jesus seems far away, it's because sin has come into our life. And we need to forsake it immediately. And that's why he will go to that complaint. The initial order, I can remember as a student in seminary going into Atlanta and passing out tracts to people in the bus station and making a, a promise to God that no day would pass that I would not witness to some person about Jesus Christ. Where is that order and that first love? I want that kind of love for Jesus back. Samuel Rutherford came to Christ when he was just a young man in Scotland. And he had a wonderful way of putting things. He said that he had met Jesus. And he said, he has stolen my heart and run away to heaven with it. Love is important because it means a, a deeper worship of God. Without that love, then the hymns mean nothing. Communion means nothing. Preaching means nothing. And the work that you do means nothing. That's why Jesus rebuked Martha when she was such a fuss budget about what she was doing. Jesus said, the things that you're doing, Martha, are too much. This is, uh, you're doing all this when it's not necessary. Mary has chosen the better thing. You should sit down and learn. We need to learn from that. Love is important because its products are a deeper worship. That's what Martha needed to learn. It's a prompter obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How can we say that we love him if we don't obey him? If you love him, why not serve him is the old Negro spiritual. I remember some little boys who were playing football one time and they had elected a quarterback and he, he came out of the huddles just absolutely disgusted and he said, it's stupid, it's just absolutely stupid. You make me quarterback and then you won't run the play I call. Well, he's got a point. Jesus is calling the play and he calls them through his book, the Bible, and through his word and through his hymns. And so that means a sacrificial love to do what he wants us to do and to obey him promptly and sincerely. The Christian notion of love is not a sentiment or an affection, but it's something that moves in obedience. Now let me say this. You do not grow in the Christian faith by reading books. You grow by obeying by doing what he commands you to do. The old catechism puts it perfectly. How may I glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. That's why Ed Curry at 92 can be that way and Brown Hoyt at 90 can be that way. They came up on that kind of faith and they lived in that kind of faith and they died in that kind of faith. Now the letter concludes with a command. The church is commanded to remember its former condition. Remember the love that it had. And it's commanded to repent, to get a new heading. The pilot that I flew with the other day when we went up the Outer Banks is an excellent pilot. He would call into the tower and ask for a new heading when we'd started to another city. And he would be told at what altitude he could fly 
and what bearing on the compass he was to take. The other night, an Argentine airline almost crashed into the Transamerica building in New York. It was picked up on radar, and the controller had to give another command. And, and that command caused that aircraft to turn, or it would have crashed into a tall building, and all the people would have been killed, and much havoc wrought. Repent means more than just sorrow for sins. It means a change of course, a new direction, decisive action that is taken, a desired change. And the church is commanded to resume its former state. You know what you were like at first. And I do too, says Jesus through John, his servant, to the church at Ephesus. Go back. Go back to that love. Now let me close. John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John 2. He says, Beloved, if God so loved, so ought we also to love one another. One of the most beautiful stories about John, one of the most ancient legends about him, was that when he was an old man and too feeble, to walk to church because of infirmity, loving arms lifted him and carried him to the assembly. And when he spoke to his church, they would always ask him out of respect to speak. Someone else spoke because he was too weak. But then at the conclusion of the service, they would ask him to speak. And he was old, and every time he said the same thing, little children love one another. And he said that every time. And finally they said to him, but, but John, you walked with Jesus. You saw him. You felt him. You heard him. Can't you tell us something new? And all he would say was, little children, love one another. And the poet Eastman puts it this way. Now remember, an island and a sea, Patmos, the sea lapping up against it. How dark it is, I cannot seem to see the faces of my flock. Is that the sea that murmurs so, or is it weeping? Hush, my little children, God so loved the world, he gave his son, so love ye one another. Love God and love man. No message delivered anywhere at any time is more important than that. Love God and love man, but that requires faithfulness to it.